So this is a rhetorical question and I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. How many of you have ever gotten a speeding ticket? Don't, don't raise your hand. The fact that you just said I'm not going to means you've gotten a speeding ticket. So if you just said that, you have revealed that you have gotten a speeding ticket. No, um, you know, it's, it's, you know that anxiety that goes through you when you see those lights and you realize, oh man, I'm, I'm busted. They got me. Cop ever come to your window and ask you what the speed limit was when he first walks up? Isn't that the worst? Hey, you know what the speed limit was back there? Sometimes you can say, no, I didn't know. And they'll tell you, well, you were going 52 and 35 or whatever it was. There is no worse feeling than having to be honest with the police officer and say, yeah, I know what it was. And he says, well, then why were you going 52 and a 35 if you knew it was 35? And you don't have, there's like no excuse for it. You're like, yeah, I knew, I knew what it was and I was going fast anyway. If you had been a part of Israel during the Exodus period and you were asked if you knew something, it would be a little bit more complicated than the illustration I just gave. The reason for this is that the Hebrew word for know also means to acknowledge or recognize and therefore obey. The Hebrew word for no doesn't just mean you intellectually agree that something's true. It carries with it this idea of acknowledging and recognizing. So like so many other Hebrew words, it presupposes a link between what you think and how you act. Does that make sense? So to say I know something means that there's a link between what I think and the way that I act. So this meaning in Hebrew, if I knew the speed limit, I would have acknowledged and obeyed the speed limit. Does that make sense? So the idea of knowing something isn't just I knew that it's true, but I'm acknowledging that it's true and I'm aligning my actions up with that truth. And in fact, Greek has the same kind of idea as well. This is often what the prophets complained about when they talked about Israel in the Old Testament. They would say, Israel, they claim to know the Torah. They claim to know the law of God, yet they do not obey it. Therefore, they do not know it. This entire story of the Exodus that we have been working through. God is moving through this entire story, this entire narrative in order to draw people to this kind of knowing. God wants them not just to know that he's the one true God, but to acknowledge that he's the one true God and act accordingly. So with Pharaoh, for instance, he doesn't just want Pharaoh to know that Yahweh is God. He wants to, Pharaoh to acknowledge that Yahweh is God and then to, to act upon that by letting the people go. You remember what Pharaoh said back in chapter 4, verse 2. 
the first time Moses and Aaron show up. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. A link between I don't know and I don't act. God's fixing that in this story. He's bringing Pharaoh to the place where Pharaoh will know Yahweh is the Lord. He will know Yahweh is God and he will act accordingly by letting the people go. God is actually undoing through this entire narrative. He is undoing that statement by Pharaoh. I do not know the Lord. I'll fix that, God says. And I will not let the people go. I'll fix that, God says. God also wants Israel to know that he is Yahweh. God is moving in such a way that he wants Israel to know, I am the God of your father, fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to know that, acknowledge that, believe that, and then act accordingly by obeying me and leaving. So as we reach this last and final sign of God, the Lord now works in such a way to bring this knowledge to everyone involved. Everyone involved in this story is now going to acknowledge, know that Yahweh is God. Before we look at the warning of the last sign, uh, the last sign itself and Israel leaving, I, I want to remind us that everything that we have been talking about and everything that's going to happen today as we look at it, this has already been foretold by God. God has already said exactly what's going to happen. He's already laid it out. In, in chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, here's what Scripture says. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. Well, we've looked at that. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, so back in chapter 4, we're being told what's going to happen in chapter 12. God is already laying out exactly what he's going to do. It doesn't matter what Pharaoh does. It doesn't matter what the Egyptians do. It doesn't matter what the evil forces try to, to fight against God. Nothing that anyone does is going to stop from happening what God has decreed and ordained. In chapter 3, verses 19 through 22, God says this. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So God's going to bring that mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Back in chapter 3, back in chapter 4, God has already laid out what he's going to do. So, what we're about to read, what we're about to look at this morning, has already been set by the sovereign decree of God. There is no chance this doesn't happen. Okay? This has already been decreed by the Lord, and now the time of the Lord has come. I want to read the first 10 verses of chapter 11. 
And then we'll, we'll jump to the end of chapter 12 as well. Brother James covered the first part of chapter 12 last week when we talked about the Passover. But I want to read the first, all really of chapter 11, it's 10 verses, and, um, and, and say a few things about this warning here. Verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, yet one plague more will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man and his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold, jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is buying the handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you shall know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh and all, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go in his land. Now, this chapter is not confusing in what it says. It's confusing as to where it falls in the narrative. Okay? When you study this, it can be confusing when Moses said this to Pharaoh, when he got this word from the Lord. So I, I, let me... Let me Kind of think how I think that this narrative goes, how I think this falls. Chapter 11 is, is really more of a parenthetical chapter. All right. Here's here's what I think as I study this. I think Moses gets a word from the Lord about this final plague before verse 24 of chapter 10. So verse 24 of chapter 10 is when he talks to Pharaoh about the darkness. I think the Lord has already given Moses this word about the tenth sign before he ever goes to Pharaoh about the ninth sign. Then Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh what the Lord has said. I think that occurs before verse 28 and 29 of chapter 10. So 28 and 29 of chapter 10 is when Pharaoh says, get away from me, take, uh, take care never to see my face again, for on the day that you see me, you shall die. I think he talks to Pharaoh about the tenth sign before Pharaoh says that. So follow me. Here's, what I here's how I think the narrative goes. Moses hears from the Lord. I'm going to have a sign that's going to come upon the people. It's going to be darkness. But I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh's not going to let the people go. And there's going to be a tenth sign. And this tenth sign is going to be that I'm going to take the firstborn of all of Egypt away. And that's the final sign. And that's when he's going to let you go. 
Then Moses goes into Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you haven't let the people go after the eighth sign. There's going to be a ninth sign of God. This ninth sign is going to be darkness upon the land. And it's going to be so thick that you can feel it. And you're not going to be able to see anybody. And it's going to be a a symbol or a picture of some darkness that is even worse that is coming. Because in the middle of the night, Pharaoh, God is going to kill the firstborn of everybody in Egypt. I believe those two signs are given to Pharaoh at the same time. Then Pharaoh says, get out of here, and if I ever see your face again, I'm going to kill you. So let's talk a minute about exactly what the Lord says to Moses and what Moses says to Pharaoh. Does that make sense, the kind of the narrative flow there? Um, man, when you, when you study the, the, the historians and the theologians about what to do with chapter 11, it can... It gets really confusing about like where to piece it. So I just thought if I just kind of tell the story for you, that would make the best sense. At least it did in my mind as well. So what does the Lord say to Moses? He says, one more sign. One final last sign. One more stroke. Then Pharaoh's going to let you go. So what he says in in verse 1, then Pharaoh's going to let you go. But he's not just going to let you go. He's actually going to drive you out completely. He is going to be so ready to get rid of you after this last sign. He's not just going to reluctantly let you go. He is going to drive you out. Get out of here. Get away from me. Just leave. And then God says, and I want you to tell Israel, that they need to ask their neighbors, Egyptian neighbors, some of their slave masters, ask them for gold and silver. And, I, and I'm going to, verse 3, I'm going to give Israel favor with the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are going to give them a bunch of gold and silver. Now, this doesn't make any sense. You're our slaves. And you just come and ask for gold and silver and we're just going to unload it on you. We're just going to take this gold and silver and we're just going to leave. By the way, do you know what the gold and silver? Well, I'll save that. (laughs) So this is what God tells Moses before, I think, 1024. Then Moses goes to Pharaoh and here's what Moses says to Pharaoh. Verse four, the Lord will go out in the middle of the night in the midst of Egypt. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm reading a story and I find out that God is going out among the midst in the middle of the night, that's pretty ominous for, I mean, something terrible is probably going to take place. You don't want to read about God moving in judgment in the middle of the night. In verses five and six, he says, every firstborn of Egypt is going to die. From the palace to the cattle, there will be mourning in Egypt like never before, nor will there ever be again. But my people Israel, not even a dog will growl at them. My people are going to be so safe, not one Egyptian dog will even snarl at Israel. And then, verse 8, Pharaoh and all his people will finally acknowledge Yahweh. 
Then I think Pharaoh says, 10, 28, and 29, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see me, your, your face shall die. Now, this makes sense to me. Because if it was just the darkness thing, why is Pharaoh getting so mad? Hey, it's going to be dark for three days. You're not going to be able to see anything. Well, that's, that's terrible and that's bad. And that, that's not good. But if it's followed up by, oh, and by the way, every firstborn, God's going to do one more sign after that. And every firstborn is going to die. Your son's going to die, Pharaoh. Now it makes sense for Pharaoh to say, get out of my sight. And if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. You just threatened the future Pharaoh of Egypt. Get out of my sight. So Moses leaves in verse 8 of chapter 11. Moses now leaves in anger. You're not going to heed God, are you? You're, you're, you're going to continue to be obstinate. You're going to continue. Now you're threatening God's prophet. So he leaves in anger. And at the end of the chapter, chapter, God is going to assure Moses, Moses, listen, I know that that encounter just went really bad. Okay? That just went terrible. But the reason why Pharaoh is not heeding and obeying is so that my wonders can be multiplied and that my name is going to be acknowledged and known. So, so I know that you're mad right now, but there's a reason for this. I love how Moses is not involved in this last sign. Every other sign that God had did, the other nine, Moses or Aaron or a staff, something, some instrument was involved, right? It was always something that God was using to bring it about. There was always a means. Here, there is no human instrument. There is no um, natural element that is used at all. This is going to be God doing the sign all by himself without anybody else involved. So this is the final sign of Yahweh. The end is near. The contest of the gods is coming to a close. And just like any contest with Yahweh, it's going to be a rout. It is going to be a rout. And has already been seen. This is what God said he was going to do from the very beginning. This is not a veiled threat. This is a promise. Th Moses, go tell Pharaoh this is what I'm going to do. Now, Brother James talked about chapter 12, the institution of the Lord's Supper and everything that Israel was supposed to do in obedience to the Lord. And then we get the tenth sign in 1229. At midnight, the Lord, Yahweh, struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up early in the middle of the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house that someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. I don't have time to do with that last statement, but it's an interesting statement by Pharaoh there. 
I think what he means. Your God has won. Your God has proven himself to be the most powerful. I don't want to be at odds with your God anymore. Now he changes his mind again. But at this moment, when he's looking at his dead son, this is how he feels. Just a thought. It's interesting to me that this is the most tragic and severe of all of the signs that God does. And the description of it is three verses. That's it. Three verses. You would think there would be more. So why is the author of Exodus, which is probably Moses, why is he only attributing three verses? At least in part, it is because the focus is not on the sign, but the one that does the sign. You remember what a sign is for? We talked about it two weeks ago. What is a sign for? A sign is supposed to point to the one who gives the sign. It points to something greater than itself. The wonder itself is not the thing that we're supposed to dwell on. We're supposed to dwell on the one who brought the wonder. So this severe thing that God has brought, we're going we're to talk about it just for a minute because we want to get you back on the thought of what God is doing. So this sign is a demonstration of God's power and might in the middle of the night. And the Lord strikes down the firstborn of Egypt and all of Israel is spared. Now they're spared because they obey the Lord. That's what this tells me. Remember, remember God said, here's how you're supposed to prepare for this. Here's the Passover feast and here's the, the blood on the doorpost. And here's all the things that you're supposed to do and do these things and I'll pass over you. Well, it tells me since Israel was not touched that they obeyed God. But guess what it also tells me? They celebrated the victory before the victory ever even took place. Now that's crazy. They had a celebration of the deliverance before the deliverance had even taken place. Now, church, just as a little side note, it is what we do all the time. Now, we've been delivered from sin, death, hell. We're going to talk about that in a minute. We've been delivered from all of that, but we have not yet seen the, the ultimate culmination of that deliverance. It, it hasn't all, sin hasn't been eradicated from the earth. The earth has not been made new. The devil has not been thrown in the lake of fire. Uh, sin and death are, are still around. It's not culminated yet. Yet we come in here on Sundays and we sing and we praise and we lift up our hands and we celebrate what God has done and we trust that his promise is going to be true and that what is coming is coming. We actually come celebrate a victory before it's even happened yet. We're doing every Sunday what Israel did when they celebrated the first Passover. They're saying, listen, we're so sure of our God's victory, we're going to have a party before it even happens. That's what we do every Sunday. We come in here and we gather and we sing, we, we, we praise the Lord for what he's done. But all of that is a celebration of what God is going to do. We look back at the cross and the resurrection not only for what it brought initially, but for the victory that it has promised. 
And here, God is, it's like God is saying, listen, Israel is my, Israel's my firstborn. And you have oppressed my firstborn. You have enslaved my firstborn. You have abused my firstborn. And now, to bring justice, I'm going to take your firstborn. Who is the head of Egypt here? Not a trick question. Who's the head of Egypt? Pharaoh is. Pharaoh's the head of Egypt. He is the, the representative of Egypt. Who, so he is, it's almost like Egypt is his firstborn, right? Egypt is, is what he's in charge of, what he represents, what he's ahead of. Moses and Aaron aren't going to all the people every time saying, let the people go. They're going to the head of Egypt. Who's the head of Israel? It's Yahweh. Yahweh's the head of Israel. These are my people. These, I'm the head here. I'm the representative of Israel here. And you have been attacking my people and destroying my people. And now it is time for justice to be done. We're going to come back to that point later. But it makes all the difference in the world. Who your head is makes all the difference in the world as to whether or not you are delivered or whether or not you are destroyed. Whether you are defeated or whether you are delivered. And then, beginning in chapter 31, we have Israel leaving. Finally, they're leaving. After 430 some odd years, they're leaving. Verse 33, and the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out. God said that. And to send them out of the land in haste. God said that. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. Their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The Lord said that. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and, a very, and very much livestock, both with flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because... They were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations." We finally come to the exodus, to the deliverance. The final sign of God has moved. Pharaoh and the Egyptians want them out. They want them out with haste. Get out of here now. We want to drive you out just as God has said. Israel leaves in a hurry. They leave in such a hurry that they don't finish making their bread. Okay? You may, you may have thought up to this point, Israel just always ate unleavened bread. Like that was just the way they always ate their bread. No. The, the, Brother James is going to talk about this next week. The, the feast of unleavened, unleavened bread comes as a result of the fact that they left Israel so quickly they didn't get to finish making their bread. And when they travel for miles and miles and miles, probably 15 to 20 miles, when they finally stop, they finish making their bread. That becomes a symbol or a picture of something much bigger that Brother James is going to talk about next week. 
Israel had done exactly what God told them to do. They asked the Egyptians for gold and for silver and for, clo- uh, and for clothing, and that's exactly what they got. God had given them favor, and they left with gold and silver. This wealth would have been used by Israel to build the tabernacle, to build the Ark of the Covenant, to build the water basins that they washed, to build the altar where they made their sacrifices. God gave money from the Egyptians to Israel so Israel could build the stuff that God wanted them to build, which ultimately pictures Jesus Christ. So follow that with me. God says to Egypt, Egypt, you're going to give money. You're going to give gold and silver and clothing. You're going to give wealth to my people. It's just what you're going to do. I'm just giving you, I'm giving my people favor with you. So they do it. Israel then takes that wealth to build all of their ceremonial, all the things they need for their tabernacle and the tabernacle itself and the Ark of the Covenant and all the altars and everything they need to build the place of worship. And all of that points to Jesus. The slaves were now free. No longer slaves, but freed from the oppression, just as God said. And we read in verse 37 that there are 600,000 men. The way this language, it probably means men of military age. Not including women and children, we may be roughly talking about 1.5 to 2 million people. And it says the group also had a mixed multitude. Here's what I think that means. I think there are some Egyptians that said, enough of this nonsense. We have rebelled against Yahweh long enough. It has cost us our property. It has cost us our child. It has cost us too. They finally acknowledge and say, we're going with you guys. Just a picture, by the way, that God never intended just to save Israel. God's saving the world. A mission that God had been working on inside of time for 80 years is finally complete. And now they are free just like he promised. One of the things that we have been doing in this series is we have been talking about how the exodus points forward to a greater exodus how it points forward to the final exodus, an exodus that God is doing for the world. That's why we say how God draws us out and draws us in. We're not just looking at a historical story of of what happened with Israel and Egypt and the exodus. The New Testament writers use all of this imagery to say, listen, that exodus that Israel did, there is a greater exodus that God has done for humanity. And there's so many things about our text that we've looked at this morning that I could draw out from and say, let's let's focus on that this morning as the picture of Jesus. Or let's focus on that as as how the, the New Testament uses this language to teach us something about the salvation that Jesus brings. But but here's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on for the next few minutes the idea of headship and representation. As I said earlier, Egypt was represented by their headship, King Pharaoh. 
Israel was represented by the headship of Yahweh. And the distinction of who your head is made all the difference in that story, did it not? If you were, if Pharaoh was your head, destruction, you were defeated. If Yahweh was your head, you were delivered and you were freed. Who your head was made all the difference. Who your representative was made all the difference in this story. Headship and representation is something we see throughout all of Scripture. And when it comes to the ultimate exodus of humanity, when it comes to humanity being delivered out of the slavery of sin and death, headship means everything. You see, all of us in our natural state are represented by our federal head, Adam. When Adam sinned, all humanity fell into slavery. As our head, Adam, spiritually died and then death began to reign and sin and death reigned and sin and death reigned and no one could do anything about it. We were enslaved. Paul is going to tell us in Romans chapter 5 all about this. If you want to turn to Romans 5, you can with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I'm just going to point out a few things that Paul says here in these verses that definitely need to be focused on. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. First, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are in slavery to sin and death naturally because our head and representative is Adam. Verse 15, For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul is saying, through one man, sin and death reigned and ruled. You were enslaved. But through the grace of God, There is a free gift, another headship, another representative, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus brings life, and he brings freedom. Verse 17, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Did you hear that? Death reigned. Much more. Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ's death on the cross, leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There are two humanities. 
Church, there are two humanities because there are two representatives. It's either Adam or Jesus. If we stay in Adam, we stay slaves to sin and death. But if by the grace of God, our eyes are opened and we cry out to God just like Israel did in their slavery, God said, I have heard their cry. They have yelled out to me. They have cried out to me because they are enslaved and I have come to set them free. If we will cry out to God, then by his grace, we will receive a new representative, Jesus. And through Jesus comes deliverance, of, comes life and freedom. This is what Jesus offers. He comes and he says, listen, are you tired of living enslaved to sin and death? Are you tired of your life being a mess? Are you tired of doing things your way? And every step of the way, it just gets you deeper and deeper and deeper into slavery and bondage. There's no freedom. You can't live. You're just a mess. Jesus comes and says, by my grace, I offer freedom. I offer life. Let me be your representative. I'll deliver you. I'll free you. I died to make this happen. When it comes to the great exodus of humanity, there is only two representatives. Just like you were either represented by Pharaoh or Yahweh, we are either represented by Adam or Jesus. Cry out to him today. If you're in this place or if you're at home or you're watching this later on YouTube or, or on social media and you have never cried out to Jesus for deliverance and freedom, cry out today. I promise if you cry out to him, he will come and he will save you and he will transfer you into his kingdom where there is freedom and life. Oh man, isn't that just what, isn't this what people want? Don't people just want life and freedom? You see, in our world, our world offers a life and freedom that isn't life and it isn't freedom. I mean, we, listen, listen, we live in a world right now that says any, any way that you feel, any way that you desire, just live that out and that will be the remedy to your issue. Nah, it just leads to more bondage just leads to more slavery. The chains just get bigger. However I feel, I, I, I want to live that way. There's no freedom in that. There's no deliverance in that. Real freedom is found in Christ because what Christ does is he, we talked about it in our class today, he orients our entire life around him. And now when we stay oriented around Christ, we're free. There's real freedom there. Somebody asked, somebody asked um, Tim Keller once, how can there be freedom when there's so many rules? <laughs> right? Like, well, you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this. And if you're orienting your life around Jesus, it means all this stuff you won't do. And I loved his answer. 
Pray for Tim Keller, by the way. He is in the midst right now of um, a second round of treatment for cancer that he is uh, dealing with. And um, so pre- please be in prayer for him. But, but he, he says this. God knows the best way for us to thrive. Does he not? So when he gives us restrictions and boundaries, it's not to prohibit our freedom It's to help us exercise our freedom. It's actually to help us thrive. And then he uses this example. He said, what if a fish decided one day, you know what, I am sick of being in this lake. When I'm in this lake, it's just, I hate it. I'm going to jump out of this water and I'm going to be free up on that land. I see these people walking around. I'm going to jump out of this water and I'm going to go up there on the land so that I can be free and thrive. And you jump out of the water and that fish splashes up on the ground and in about one minute it's dead. Why? Wasn't made to be on the land. It was made to be in the water. When we as human beings say, I know how I'll thrive. I'll thrive by breaking the bonds and the restrictions that God has for me so that I can go do whatever I want and I can go live however I want. All you're doing is killing yourself. We have an entire nation that is killing itself because we are doing what we think we need to do, how we think we need to do things. And all we're doing is destroying ourselves. And Jesus says, no, you see what I do is I put you in the water. And I tell you, all this stuff out here, stay away from it. You won't thrive out there. And now guess what? You'll thrive in that water. You'll be free in that water. You'll, you'll live in that water and thrive. This is what God does. He, we're, we're, listen, we're in sin. We're outside of God's restrictions. And we're slaves to doing things our way, thinking we're going to thrive. And it doesn't work. And so what God does is God comes in his grace and he takes us out of this place out from the land that we should be in and he brings us to the land that we should be in and he says, here, live in this land and you will thrive. Come to my promised land. Leave Egypt. Come to my promised land and you will thrive. And man, we've got a, we've got a, a whole world and a culture and a, a, a country and everybody's just doing. Everybody's just doing what they think they need to do. Everybody's just doing what they think's the best thing. And the more I hear it, the more I realize none of you have a clue what you're talking about. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. You can wrap it up in political stuff. You can wrap it up in religious stuff. You can wrap it up in in school stuff. You can wrap it up in family stuff. You can, and we're wrapping it up any way we want. And in the end, I'm looking at it all. I'm like, that's not how Jesus says that we're supposed to thrive. So if you're tired of not thriving, if you're tired of of not having freedom in life, that's because your representative is Adam and you were not made to thrive in Adam. You have been made to thrive in Jesus. So cry out to him today and he will deliver you. Brother James, myself and others, we will be here at the end of every service. We're here throughout the week. Call, grab us after the service and said, I'm tired of not being free.
tired of not having life. I'm tired of not thriving in Christ. I'm done. Like those, that mixed multitude of Egyptians who said, I'm done with this. I'm done with Amun-Ra. I'm done with Isis. I'm done with all these gods that have been destroyed and proven to be nothing. I'm going after Yahweh. I'm done. And God will say, now you've just begun.